January 6, 2021 was one of the darkest days in our country's history for a plethora of reasons, including the actions of those who claim to be Christians. The editor of The New Yorker wrote in an article about that day describing the events. As the rioters milled about on the Senate floor, a long-haired man in a red ski ski cap bellowed from the deus of the house chamber, Jesus Christ, we invoke your name. A man to his right raised a megaphone and began to pray. Others in the chamber bowed their heads, and this is what they prayed. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for being the inspiration needed to these police officers to allow us into the building, to allow us to exercise our rights, to allow us to send a message to the tyrants, to the communists, to the globalists, that this is our nation, not theirs, that we will not allow the America, the American way of the United States of America, to go down. He said, thank you, divine, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, creator God, for filling this chamber with your white light and love, your white light of harmony. Thank you for filling this chamber with patriots that love you and love Christ. When people think of Christians, sadly, scenes like this are often what come to mind. And what's perhaps most tragic is how utterly stark the contrast is between Jesus' vision for his church and this scene that we just read about. Jesus said before going to the cross to die for his enemies these words. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The way that Jesus said that the world will believe in him is not through Christianizing or re-Christianizing countries. It's not through political or military force. It's not through having all the right doctrine, though doctrine is important. It's not through our best efforts at social justice, though justice is important. The way that the world will believe in Jesus, according to Jesus, is through our unity with one another. And so Jesus prayed that we would be one, and that our unity with one another would draw the watching world towards him. And so that's the big idea that we're going to see in 1 Peter 3 today, that the way of Jesus is marked by unity in our personal relationships that leads to unity in our witness to the world. An invitation for us from that is to pursue peace in our personal relationships. And as we do that, God will bless us and he will hear our prayers. And so as we move through this text together, we'll begin by considering the problem out there. Then we'll be considering the problem in here and the solution in here. And so let's ask for God's help this morning. We certainly need it as we unpack this text together. Father, We recognize, as we sang about just a moment ago, that you are present with us right now by your Spirit. Father, we recognize that your Spirit is eager this morning to speak words of encouragement to each one of us. That your Spirit is eager 
to sweetly and gently convict us of sin and to lead us towards you. And so we pray that you would do that as we look at your word. God, we have eyes to see you for who you are. God, we have eyes to see ourselves rightly in light of who you are. Father, I pray that over the coming minutes that we would just have an awareness of your presence with us right now, your nearness to us right now, and that you would speak to us clearly through your word. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by tracing the theme of unity through the story of God. And so, beginning in the beginning, the creation of, of humans. We were created in the image of a triune God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, one God eternally dwelling in unity, perfect unity with one another. And so we read in the creation account in Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice the, the plural there. We were created to reflect what the triune God is like through our unity with one another. So that's the creation of humans. Let's fast forward in the story uh, to the establishment of God's kingdom through his church. Kind of jump in way ahead. Uh, we read Jesus' words again in John 17. We read a bit earlier, but this time with a little bit more context. Again, Jesus is speaking this to his disciples, and he is saying, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. They may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world will know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus prayed that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And that is a mind-blowing concept, if you think about it. That our unity with one another would be a picture of the unity that's experienced and expressed between persons of the Trinity. That we as Jesus' church, as his people, would display inter-Trinitarian unity through our relationships with one another. That's Jesus' vision for us as his church, and it's designed to draw the watching world towards Jesus. And that's echoed throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Commentator, or the rest of the New Testament, rather. Commentator William Barclay writes, all through the New Testament rings the plea for Christian unity. It is more than a plea. It's an announcement that people cannot live the Christian life in their personal relationships if they are not at unity with one another. And that the church cannot be truly Christian if there are divisions within it. Did you catch that? We cannot live the Christian life in our personal relationships unless we are at unity with one another. And that's why Peter begins our passage today with a focus on the unity required in interpersonal relationships between Christians. Just to read the start of the passage again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 begins, Finally, all of you have unity of mind. 
That's God's vision for our unity. Unfortunately, we haven't done a great job of embodying that vision throughout history. Moving back in the story to consider the fall with the first humans in the garden, there were division, of course, between the first humans. And we, as we move into uh, the New Testament and the establishment of the church, we read in the book of Acts about divisions that enter the church. And much of the space of the New Testament letters uh, are written to a divided church and have exhortations to address that disunity. The writers of the New Testament are really passionate about this because our divisions affect God and they also affect the unbelieving world. God hates it when his church is disunified and the world is confused by it. And this, of course, wasn't just a problem in the early church. It's also a problem today. Francis Chan writes in his book, Until Unity, we are currently the most divided faith group on earth, and there isn't a close second. If you think I'm exaggerating, name another religion with more than two or three factions. We have thousands of denominations and ministries, each believing that their theology or methodology is superior. And the saddest part of this is that our Savior was crucified to end our divisions, commands us to be unified, and says that we will impact the world when we become one. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to say two things. One, super glad that you're here, honored that you would uh, be with us this morning. Second, I'm sorry that this is what the church has looked like. Jesus is far more beautiful than what you've seen reflected in the church. And I pray that you'd see just a glimpse of that through the scriptures this morning. And if you're here and you are a Christian, this isn't just a problem out there. It's a problem in here. Because the church is not an organization. It's not a building. It's not a program. The church is people. It's all of us. We are the church. And so whenever any of us are divided with another Christian, we contribute to the problem. And so let's consider how this problem of this unity exists not only out there, but in here. We contribute to the tarnished witness of the church whenever we have disunified relationships with other Christians. Whenever we publicly or privately speak ill of other Christians. Whenever we allow conflict to remain unresolved. Whenever we remain stuck in unforgiveness. We contribute to the problem. At this point of sermon, I could stop and just encourage you to try hard to do better and close in prayer. <laughs> but that would not be productive, effective, or helpful, and most importantly, it would entirely miss the gospel and be like chopping the top off of weeds, uh, which my son loves to do in the backyard, uh, rather than pulling them out by, by the roots. And so I want to look deeper. I want to consider the roots together. And one of the roots of strained relationships with other Christians is a strained relationship with ourselves. And so let's consider this as we look at verse 8, this time in the NIV translation. We read, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. It's a lofty goal 
to aim at in our relationships with others. Like-minded, sympathetic, loving, compassionate, humble. In order to relate to others this way, we need to learn to relate to ourselves this way. Is that how you relate to yourself? Loving, compassionate, humble. If God is compassionate to you, can you be compassionate to yourself? I've really struggled with this, personally, as in Enneagram 1, my inner critic can be very loud at times. All the Enneagram 1s in the room said amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> um, and at many points in my life, my inner critic has slipped into the driver's seat, into more of a controlling place in my life. And when that happens, I'm really prone towards perfectionism and overwork, and it can relate, uh, can uh, result in strain in relationships. And as I discovered more of the reality of my inner critic, my initial strategy for dealing with it was doubling down on my efforts to not be critical of myself. In a sense, criticizing my critic until it went away. <laughs> and surprise, surprise, that did not work very well. Uh, about two years ago, I hit a bit of a wall, summer of 2020, and took a few weeks off of work to focus on my mental health and my life with God. I lived in Washington at the time and spent some morning time one morning just on the edge of Lake Washington, which is really beautiful lake up in the Seattle area, and I spent time opening the scriptures, reading the Gospels, and uh, encountered Matthew 9, 36, where there's a beautiful scene where crowds are coming to Jesus to experience healing as he's establishing his kingdom, and Jesus says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And I imagine that my inner critic was like one of those people in the crowd. Harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And I imagine Jesus' tender disposition towards my critic, towards the part of myself that I hated the most. I imagined him relating to the critic like he related to the crowd, full of compassion, because that part of me was like a sheep without a shepherd. Man, that changed so much for me. It allowed me to move from criticizing my critic to being compassionate to my critic. And it's certainly been a continuing journey uh, from that, that moment as I learned to, uh, to extend compassion to my critic. But as I've been, been doing that, it's been changing the ways that I not only relate to myself, but I relate to others. Because the flip side of the critic is the judge. And as I've experienced greater healing from my critic, I've been able to be more compassionate and have less judgment towards others. Not in a weed-whacking kind of way, just taking the heads off of weeds, but in a root-transforming kind of way, in a deep way. Are you able to show compassion to others? You struggle with that. Is it possible that you struggle to show compassion to yourself. Jesus' heart is full of compassion for you. He loves all of you, every part, even the parts of you that you don't like. 
And as you experience this compassion and touch every part of who you are, you'll be more able to extend that compassion towards others. Barclay writes, Pity is of the very essence of God, and compassion of the very being of Jesus Christ. A pity so great that God sent his only son to die for us. A compassion so intense that it took Christ to the cross. There can be no Christianity without compassion. So that's one way that our inner life can affect how we outwardly pursue unity with others. Let's go back to the text and consider other ways that this can look. Coming back to verse 8, again, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Again, the target what we're aiming at is unity and how we get there. He gives a list of four virtues that are key. Peter says, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, also translated a compassionate heart, and a humble mind. So let's unpack what Peter's saying about these, these virtues. These terms, in particular, brotherly love and a compassionate heart, were made with reference to kinship obligations. Paul applies to the Christian community terms that were typically used uh, for family relationships. In the first century Greco-Roman worlds, the closest relationship between two people was actually not a marital relationship or romantic relationship, it was a family relationship. And so what Peter is saying here in a really intentional way is that we are to have the kind of unity in relationships amongst Christians that you experience in the closest of all Christian relationships. And the closest of all relationships in society. And so this list of virtues is intended to help us embody that kind of relationship with one another. A unity that brings people from diverse social and racial and economic and political backgrounds together through a shared relationship with Christ. A unity that shows how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are unified as Trinity. Now certainly embracing these virtues in our interior life and letting them shape our actions is much easier said than done. Just like you can't duct tape fruit to a fruit tree, there are no shortcuts for experiencing these virtues. We need the help of the Spirit over time. And these virtues are rooted, are really fruit that results in a person who is rooted in the Spirit. They aren't a checklist to find weaknesses so you can work on those areas. That's always tempted to read the scriptures that way. Um, that's not what they are. Uh, as you're increasingly rooted in the Spirit, the Spirit will produce these things in you. Our job, first and foremost, is to remain connected to the Spirit to remain connected to the vine, to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to God. It's what Jesus calls abiding. And as we've talked about abiding this year, it's what we've referred to as being with Jesus, living in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Spirit of God. And as we learn to do that, as we learn to be with Jesus, we will become like him will be shaped to become like him in our character, in our virtues. And as we do that, then we will do what Jesus did, not from a place of religious compulsion, but from a place of overflow, from a place of restedness, in knowing in a deep way the love and tenderness of the Father for each one of us, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing 
what Jesus did. Do you want a life that is marked by unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind? I know I do. The key is to learn to be with Jesus throughout our days. Dallas Willard writes, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdens and habits of dwelling on things less than God. It's a really kind way to put it. Uh, but these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as a needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. The key is letting our mind return to God like the needle of compass, the compass returns to the north. Learn to be with Jesus while we check our emails. Learn to be with Jesus while we make a cup of coffee in the morning. Learn to be with Jesus while we're stuck in traffic. Learning to be with Jesus in the midst of the everyday, ordinary aspects of our lives. And as we drift throughout the day, and we all will, coming back, like a needle of a compass returns to north, coming back to being aware of his presence with us, realizing, God, I haven't been aware of you even for this last hour, but here I am. I just recognize you here with me. Help me to be aware of you as I engage in what's before me this day. Then, from that kind of place, of restedness in Jesus, of connectedness to Jesus, we can do what is utterly impossible apart from him. What this passage invites us to is impossible apart from Jesus. Reading verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. That's really common in the world. That's really easy to do. It's hard to do is this. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Did you catch that? We're commanded to repay evil with blessing. Peter here is just echoing the words of Jesus in the sermon on the mount, Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to see you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. What Peter and Jesus command us to do here is nearly impossible. When someone wrongs us, don't retaliate. Don't pretend like it's no big deal. Don't talk about them behind their back. But rather, bless them. Not a negative response, not a neutral response, but a positive response. Repay evil with blessing. Now, one important qualifier, uh, this doesn't apply to situations of abuse. If you or someone you know has been a present or past victim of abuse, physical, sexual, verbal, any kind of abuse, please do not replay evil with blessing, but rather get out of the abusive situation, report the abuse, and get help. 
God's heart is always for the protection of those who are vulnerable and abused. And then once you're out, get help on the road to healing. But barring situations of abuse, repay evil with blessing. That's a picture of what love looks like on display. Now, modern culture sees love as merely an emotional attachment of maybe greater intensity than liking. It's one way you could define love in broader culture right now. But for Peter, the command to love in this context isn't about emotions at all. It's about acting rightly towards those who do evil, regardless of whatever emotions may or may not be involved. Speaking to this, Francis Chan writes, in the church, in the church we divide easily because we love shallowly. In the church, we divide easily because we love shallowly. Do you love deeply enough to fight for unity? Do you love deeply enough to repay evil with blessing? Do you love deeply enough to seek peace and pursue it? Ask yourself, who is someone that you are not at peace with? Maybe they wronged you. Maybe you wronged them. Maybe it's a family member, a friend, a spouse, someone in your citizen's community even. Who is someone that you are not at peace with? Do you love that person enough to seek peace with them? Do you love that person enough to repay evil with blessing? I want to share two stories of how this has played out in my life. As some of you know, my parents got divorced when I was nine, and my mom suffered from physical and mental illness, some diagnosed, some undiagnosed. And after the divorce, I at first saw her around once a week, and then around once a month, and then eventually only every couple years, as she kind of slowly drew out of my life. And by the time I was in high school as a 16-year-old, I hadn't seen her for over three years. And as she grew more and more distant, I grew more and more hatred and resentment and anger towards her for the sense of abandonment that I experienced. And it kind of came to a head my junior year of high school when I was 16, when God did this beautiful new work in my life. I watched the movie The Passion of the Christ for the first time, an imperfect film, one that was so helpful for me in just recognizing all that Jesus endured to accomplish my forgiveness. And through that, that film, through other just conversations with friends and leaders and folks in my life, I came to, in a whole new way, understand the depths of my need for Jesus, the depths of my sin, and the ways that I had been forgiven by Jesus. And I'd heard it, like I grew up in the church, I had heard those things, but it never clicked. But in that moment, it did. And it, it changed so much for me, including a new desire to take a step of forgiveness towards my mom, towards the person who had hurt me more deeply than anyone else. That might be true until I die. Um, and so I, people searched her to find out where she lived. I didn't know where she lived. Um, and showed up on a not smart doorstep. 
and would have been really justified for me to share words of condemnation with her for how she abandoned me. But that's not what my mom got. I got to extend words of forgiveness to her, coming from a place, a fresh place, of having experienced the forgiveness that Jesus had towards me. And it was so beautiful. There were, uh, over the course of two days, many hours we spent together just catching up and being together as mother and son in a beautifully restored way. And tragically, uh, several months after that, she, she passed away. And I am so thankful to God for that moment that I got to share with my mom because of understanding the forgiveness that I had received and being able to take a step of forgiveness towards her. One more story. The first church that I served at after finishing my undergrad was a beautiful community that I loved dearly. However, unknown to me, there was some significant internal conflict amongst the core leaders of the church that went undealt with for years. A number of individuals had significant concerns about one of the core leaders in the church, but that leader was hard to approach because people, when they came to that leader, often felt shamed if they questioned him or asked any concerns, asked about any concerns. And so rather than people talking to that leader, the concerned individuals kept their concerns amongst themselves, and that leader was largely unaware that there was anything wrong. Over the years, tensions grew to a tipping point. And very long story short, that church doesn't exist today in large part because conflict was swept under the rug rather than being dealt with until things were too late. Who is someone that you are not at peace with? Please pursue peace with them for the sake of our church, Pursue peace with them for your sake, for their sake. Pursue peace with them for the sake of the church. There's a lot at stake. We talk a lot as citizens about being family. And healthy family has conflict with one another and works through it. Unhealthy family ignores conflict and brushes it under the rug. And so if you're not at peace even specifically with someone in our church presently or in the future, please pursue peace with them. If you need help doing that, talk with Rob or myself or Dave. If you have a concern about one of our elders, talk to that elder about it. Or if you're not comfortable, talk with another elder about it. If we want to be a picture of unity to the watching world, we need to continue to cultivate unity within our church. And that starts with each one of us doing our part. We become aware that we're disunified with another believer. We have a choice of how to respond. The final verses of this passage make that clear. We read verses 10 to 12. Whoever would love life and, seek and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We have a choice. We can pursue peace, or we can ignore the problem. We can do good, or we can do evil. We can be blessed by God, or we can be opposed by God. We can choose life, 
or in a sense, we can choose death. And the reality is that all of us, at points, myself included, have chosen the wrong path. We have chosen not to pursue peace. We have chosen, chosen to avoid conflict and ignore the problem. We've chosen to retaliate. And in doing so, we've chosen to resist God and oppose Him. And our disunity grieves God. Here's the good news. Jesus paid the penalty for our evil so that we can do good. Jesus was separated from the Father so that we can be unified. This passage ends, what we just read, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's a strong warning to us. And on the cross, Jesus, the only one who ever always did good, was counted as one who did evil. And for a moment, because of that, the face of the Lord was against him. The Son of God, who had dwelt with the Father for all eternity, was cut off from the affection of the Father because of your sin and my sin. Such that on the cross, in Jesus' final breath, he cried out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the cost of our forgiveness. The eternal Son of God being momentarily severed from his Father's affection. So church, let's remember the costly gift of forgiveness that we have received. And let's forgive one another. Let's move towards one another when we wrong one another. Let's relentlessly pursue unity to show the world a true picture of what our God is like. That our God is one, so we are one. And as we do this, we'll be blessed in this life. This passage says that as we repay evil with blessing, we will inherit a blessing, see good days, that the eyes of the Lord will be upon us, that his ears will be attentive to our prayers. Beautiful promises for us. Do you want that? Do you want God to be attentive to your prayers? Do you want the eyes of the Lord to be upon you? Then choose the path that leads to life. Who is someone that you are not at peace with? Pursue peace with them. And as we pursue peace, the world will see that our God is one because we are one will be a living preview of the last scene in the story of God, where we read of God's unified people dwelling with him. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their our unity today will help our non-Christian friends and family and neighbors join the celebration on that day. And we don't have to wait. 
we can experience a picture of that day today in our lives, in our relationships, in our church, in our city. What an amazing witness it would be to our city if churches in San Francisco moved more greatly towards unity. And it's happening in beautiful pockets, but there's more for us. There is more. And as we unite together as Jesus' people in the city, together as one church, that will be an amazing witness of what our God is like to the watching world because that is how Jesus said people will know who, uh, that he was sent from the Father. It's through our unity with one another. The way of Jesus is marked by unity in our personal relationships that leads to unity in our witness to the world. So let's pursue peace with one another. Join me in prayer.